This week on the OneCast, we're joined by Corey Oakley, who's going to talk about his career in fisheries and some of the things going on in the state of North Carolina. But it's also very relevant to whatever state you're listening in. That's a good one. That's a good one. Oh, God, it's a toad. Huh? It's a f***ing toad, dude. Let's go. I wake up to a little bit of drool on my pillow, feel like it's going to be a bad day. What is going on, fans of the OneCast? Welcome back. Episode 16, I think. Uh, we aren't doing the best of keeping track, but it doesn't really matter because we're having fun putting these out. Uh, as always, we're going to start with that shameless plug uh, for OneCast Fishing. Head over to OneCastFishing.com. Use the code THEONECAST to save 10% uh, on your order. Check out our snagless jigs, long neck hooks. Join the snagless revolution. Uh, ben, Trey, how are you all this week? Doing very well. Doing well. Trey, you want to talk about what happened uh, yesterday real quick? Yeah. So I've been sleeping all day. Just kidding. I had to work. Uh, this weekend was an awesome event, man. We had the 2023 Spring Warrior Clash on Sharon Harris Lake where we uh, had a multitude of anglers out on the water hosting veterans and first responders, firefighters, former firefighters, and, uh, and, and paramedics. Um, to enjoy like an eight-hour tournament on the water. We had uh, Heroes Harvest, which is the 501c3 that I'm the director of fishing for, uh, in, co- in coordination with the Armed Forces Initiative, the uh, backcountry hunters and anglers out of Fort Bragg who attended the event. One Cast Fishing, uh, who threw together awesome tackle bags uh, for the giveaways at the end of the event. Blessed, uh, blessed Vet Baits, uh, Mark Tuck, he put together some, uh, some jigs and some different fishing tackle. And then the event itself was hosted by the Piedmont Bass Classics and the FLR Outdoors. So it was a great event. Um, there was a lot of fish caught. We all know Sharon. If you don't know, Sharon Harris is a slot limit lake. So any bass that is between 16 and 20 inches cannot go in your live well. So it makes for a very tough fishing tournament. But the goal was to get the veterans and the first responders on the water, build that team cohesion, and uh, experience some great outdoor therapy. And I, I think overall it went well. The taco truck was late, uh, which was a travesty. However, you know, I, I threw him a little cash and, and got some tacos from him. So, you know, next time around we'll do a better job at that. But it was a great event overall. I appreciate everybody attending and uh, hope that you guys enjoyed yourself. Yeah, Trey, I wanted to thank you. You, you know, you did a lot of work, a lot of leg work, and uh, had a lot of fun. You know, my dad came down to, to fish with us. For those of you watching, he brought us this beautiful table that he built from us from Pennsylvania. So no more of that uh, plastic uh, table we had going on. Uh, we got this nice, pretty wood table. Uh, he's a retired fire captain in Pennsylvania, so he fished with me, and we had a blast. The fishing was a little tough. We had a high-pressure system and everything moving, uh, and all the fish I caught were were slot fish, so... Uh, we'll get into that here in a little bit. You're welcome. But, uh, yeah, yeah, thank you. <laughs> we did have some big Speak. ones caught, though. Yeah, yeah, there were some big ones. We, there were we some had, big ones. We had three over six that were caught, and then we had a four that should have been a five and a half that was about 20, 21, 22 inches long. And I forgot to mention, we did have uh, North Carolina biologists out there, and which was, from the conservation standpoint, the most important part. They were taking DNA samples, clipping fins and taking DNA samples of any largemouth bass. Originally, that was supposed to be over five pounds, but we didn't have a lot of those coming in. So any largemouth that was over two pounds, um, Seth, who works for North Carolina, he took those fin samples of those fish. And that's really, and, and we'll dig into it later, but that's the important part, like making sure that we understand our fisheries and how to conserve them so that we can fish for tomorrow. Yep. Awesome. That's a good transition. So, yeah, slot fish, 
Uh, it just worked out. We had that this weekend, and we have Corey Oakley here with uh, North Carolina Wildlife Resource Commission. Corey, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself, let our listeners know what it is you do? Sure. So uh, my name's Corey Oakley. I am the Assistant Chief of Fisheries for the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission. My job is to oversee the sport fish management side of our division. So that means things that people would go out and fish for and catch. Um, that my group is overseeing that biology and that conservation of those animals. Awesome. Yeah. So we've, we've met Corey at a few shows. Uh, we got talking to him. Uh, he hosts the bald biologist Two bald biologist podcast. Is that the right name with uh, Ben? It, it, the, the entire title is better fishing with two bald biologists. Yeah. Uh-huh. With Ben Ricks is there. my, my cohort that does that. Awesome. Yeah. So make sure if you're not listening to that one, you check that one out again, they're, you know, North Carolina based, but what they talk about has uh, reached throughout the country and, and fisheries all over. So, Corey, I'm going to jump right into it. I had to throw about a 20, maybe 22-pound bag back yesterday because uh, they were that 19-and-a-half-inch uh, fish. Um, so just talk a little bit about the slot limit on Harris and any other slot limits in general and uh, kind of what the thought was behind that and where we are now with it. I could be wrong, and I probably am wrong when I say this, Harris is a lake that really only had, I think it's the only lake in North Carolina that currently has a slot limit on largemouth bass. And it has a longstanding history on the lake. Um, that slot limit was put in place. The, the goal there, both management-wise and from an angling perspective back then, because Harris was growing big fish, was one, to conserve, but also to make it kind of a trophy fishery. I mean, that was kind of the point of that slot limit. Um, and it's been on the lake, man, I don't know, it's before my time. Um, I'm going to say the 90s, maybe even into the 80s that that slot limit came came to be. Um, that was back in the day when, you know, Harris had a lot of hydrilla, mm-hmm. um, grew a lot of big fish. Um, and so that was kind of the push for all that. Well, what we've seen with that slot limit now, um, we've actually tried to remove that slot limit a couple of times. And, and it's kind of taken some publicity hits and public public anglers really didn't want us to do that. And that's been years ago. And what we've seen with that slot limit is that those fish that are in that 16 to 20 inch range get stacked up there kind of tight together. There's a lot of fish in that 16 to 20 inch range. That's why you caught so many of them, right? <laughs> and, um, but what we also see is there's a, there's a, we do a lot of different metrics. Seth did some of those the other day at the tournament. He's, he's taking links and weights and, and all this kind of stuff. But there's one metric that we really look at. It's called a condition factor. And it's basically how fat the fish is based on its overall length. And that condition factor is a really good indication of how well they're growing, um, how fat they are for their size, if they're too skinny. A lot of times if they're too skinny, that's telling you that there's not enough resources for them to eat for the amount of fish that's there. Mm -hmm. And so in that slot limit, that's actually what we're starting to see in that 16 to 20 inch range. We're starting to see fish that, you know, so if you look at it, it, the scale is basically zero to a hundred, hundred being like super fat. Um, Generally bass in North Carolina in all the surveys I've done and all the surveys our staff do a a quality bass fishery is somewhere between 90 and 105 Mm -hmm. is the number you're looking for. Um, 90s about average, okay. you know, um, when you get down into the mid eighties, you're, you'll start noticing the fish kind of have a little bit bigger head, a little bit slender body. Don't have that kind of square look to them. 
that you would think with a with a large mouth, not rotund, you know, they're not as tall yeah. as they are long kind of thing. Almost start looking striper, mm-hmm. you know, striped uh, bass like almost kind of full. Like they stopped eating mama's fried chicken. Exactly. Like yeah. they like they need to, <laughs> I, I used to tell people all the time, it's like they need to eat a cheeseburger, you know. Um <laughs> and so I haven't looked at the data with Harris in the past couple of years because my position has changed. But back when I was over that Piedmont region, what we were starting to see, we were starting to see the 80s creep in on those 16 to 20 inch fish. Um, we were starting to see, you know, 87, 86, 88, you know, which is an indication that the condition is getting worse, in our opinion, in that group. And so long story short, we probably need to investigate, you know, thinking about removing that part of the rule and just going to the standard bass rule. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to tell you, because I'm everybody knows me knows I'm pretty much a straight shooter. I don't I don't give you colorful language or, or any of that or, or beat around the bush, so to speak. Bass anglers really determine what's happening because a bass rule is only as good as if, as if you actually did it. Right. Yeah. You understand what I'm saying? You know, um, Bass harvest in North Carolina, particularly amongst largemouth and smallmouth bass, is extremely limited. Mm-hmm. Now, in the coastal plain, it's a little different. You'll get bass harvest somewhere in that 8 to 10% range of fish caught go home. In the Piedmont, it's less than 3% everywhere. I mean, think about that. People yeah. don't eat bass. People don't eat bass. Area, People yeah. don't keep bass. The mantra from Ray Scott and BASS forever was catch and release, catch and release, catch and release. And, and that's great. I mean, I, I'm not knocking it. You know, MLF has, has you know, has promoted this catchway release tournaments. You know, they don't even bring them back in the live well, which personally, if you're going to release a fish, that's the best way to do it yeah, in all yeah, honesty. Yeah. Yep. Um, you know, because toting them around in a, in a, I don't care how good live wheels are, toting them around in live wheel all day long, depending on water temperature, can be very lethal to them. Oh, Might yeah. not be lethal right then, but it'll be lethal two days from now. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can get into that, but... There's such limited harvest on these fisheries that they they are going to stack up. Mm-hmm. You know, now pressure is important in terms of pressure can be almost like harvest. You know, if you catch a bunch of fish and release a bunch of fish, that pressure can be kind of like harvest. Those some of those fish will die from that, and that that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but you got to think about reservoir like a cow pasture. There's only so many cows you can put on that pasture. And that's exactly what largemouth bass are doing in a reservoir. There's only so many largemouth bass, along with all the other predators that are at, let's use Harris as the example. You know, there's only so many predators, mouths you can feed in that system. And if you don't thin the herd at some level, you're going to reduce the quality you have. You might not reduce the numbers. The numbers will probably still be there, but the quality will go down over time. I can give you, and it's, 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 not as it's not it's not seen as often in a larger system like Harris is a fairly large I mean, it's four thousand acres it's a pretty good size system, but when you get in these municipal reservoirs that are eight hundred to fifteen hundred acres and less, that's when you really start seeing it. Mm-hmm. You really start seeing that if it doesn't have a whole lot of pressure on it or if it has minimal pressure, you'll really start seeing stunting start what we yeah. call stunning or overcrowding starting to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It really turns out in other species of fish first, like crappy are really bad about it. You'll see it in those other species of fish long before you see it in a largemouth. 
But eventually, you can stun a largemouth bass fishery. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. and that we're not we're not at the stunt stage at Harris. So that was a long winded answer. You're not at the stunt stage at Harris, but you are seeing because there's not a lot of harvest of those fish. Those fish don't even go in the live well, so you're yeah. not even putting that pressure on them, right? Yeah. So those fish aren't even going to live well; they're going right back. You you're seeing those fish basically kind of thin down because there's so many of them in that group. And people think, well, that doesn't make sense. Well, a lot of times these fish work in the same groups to get like same size groups. Like you'll yeah. get a lot of largemouth that are the same size when they're offshore. Yep. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, I've fished I'm right here 15 minutes mm-hmm. away from Harris. I, yeah. I'm always out on Harris. And one of my favorite times to fish is in the summertime because unlike Jordan or unlike a larger reservoir, they only have limited surface right. surface area to go to, and they get thick by the hundreds in the yeah. schools in the summertime. <laughs> the big fish are in there, but the ones you tend to catch are in that sixteen to twenty or less. So when a lot of pe- so throwing fish back isn't always necessarily a good thing. That's, That's true, right? And I'm I'm not here to say take every bass home. So don't right. don't that is not no. my Follow take. That is not limit. my yeah, but you. We have harvest limits on them for a reason. Exactly. Right? Is for to allow you to be able to do that. One of the things you will find with a limit like that 16 to 20 is you eventually can get to a place where we call what it's called a bottleneck in biology. And basically you got all these fish that are going up and they're all in that 16 to 20 inch range. And there's so many of them that to get above that, to get to the 21, 22, it pinches them. Yep. And you'll instead of like all of them going together, you know, so to speak, yeah. and getting, you know, bigger together, it'll be just a minute few that get above that. Yep. We call it bottlenecking. And so you'll you'll get less and less of those larger That's fish of those 22, 23, 24, 25 inch fish. You'll get less of those because you've bottlenecked because you've got so many of those in that middle group. It, they don't know what to do, you know, and, and it's a, it's all about a fight for resources. Yep. That's what it, it's what it comes down to. I remember, yeah, I've, I've been fishing Harris probably since 2013, so I remember the tail end of the hydrilla there. And mm-hmm. but I've certainly noticed there's 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 less of those eight, nine, ten pounders caught out of Harris than there seemed to be used to be. So I've had this theory for a couple of years, and you're the great guy to ask on this to tell me I'm wrong. But you're wrong. Okay, <laughs> I say that to staff. <laughs> but so the, the joke of that is, is my staff always says, "I got a question." I always go, "No." <laughs> it's okay to say no, correct? Because I, I like to, I like to know the, the kind of the truth behind this. But my theory was so they were so Ferris was such a great fishery. You had the bass, but it was kind of like Kentucky Lake a few years ago. Uh, the last time, like the elites and the pros were, there, they were catching monster bags on ledges. But they had the Asian carp. They had a, several bad spawns. And all those big fish died off, and there wasn't good replacement. And with killing the grass at Harris, there's there was less cover for a few years sure. uh, for those fry to go to. And so you, you see those old fish that were there are now gone, and, and now you've got that pinch point because it's just not the same. It's not the same body of water it was a few years ago. So is is that the question? Is there a question? Well, yeah, my question is: question. is it, Does the grass, the lack of grass, and the change in habitat does it has that affected the the larger size fishes, in addition to the slot pinching. So there's a lot going on at Harris. So I'll start all the way back. Um, you know, in the mid-80s, 
hydrilla showed up on the landscape, it became basically 25% coverage of the reservoir at one time. So 4,000, a thousand acres was covered in hydrilla. And that, and that was kind of the heyday of, of fishing at Harris was that peak of hydrilla run through the, through the late eighties, mid nineties, that kind of thing. And Jealous. Then, <clears throat> then we saw this kind of slow decline in hydrilla across the reservoir over, over really a decade or more, probably more than that. It just kind of slowly precipitously declined on its own. And that, we've seen that in other places in the state of North Carolina. We don't really know exactly what that mechanism is that's causing that. But then once it got to a really low level, um, the Division of Water Resources, who's in charge of managing hydrilla and all that, decided because it's going downstream, we want to get rid of it in the reservoir. So they put in grass carp and, and started that process. And so now you're seeing basically no hydrilla in the reservoir. Mm-hmm. But the bigger picture that's going on at Harris is is a multitude of things. The the watershed has changed dramatically. Um, 20, 30 years ago, this watershed was all countryside. It was either forested or farmland of some kind. Um, the watershed now is, I don't know what it is percentage-wise, but you can't go too far around the lake without seeing some sort of uh, residential community being built. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're having this mass influx of roads, max, mass influx of houses. So the watershed has changed. So that's changed the water quality in the lake. Yes. Um, the lake, the lake is silting in faster in the upper ends. You're starting to see those areas get really, really shallow. Um, you're seeing the water quality change. There's high nutrient load in the lake, which grows fish to a point. And then at some point, if it gets high enough, it becomes a detriment at, at some level. It can actually cause fish kills. We hadn't seen that at Harris, but we're getting on that precipice. Um, and, and, and you've also seen the lack of hydrilla in the lake, too. I mean, so I'm not discounting that. But it, 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 I say all that to say it's it, it's it, you can't look at one thing. It's, a, it's all the things put together. Yeah. Um, it's usually I, how it is. It's yeah, not just and always I, one and thing. I would, and I would tell you that, you know, as far as the population goes in terms of the surveys that we, we conduct, we really have not seen a drop-off, a significant drop-off in bass in the lake in terms of overall sizes, in terms of their growth rates, in terms of all that. What's happened is the fish have changed because hydrilla has changed. So the fish have changed what they do. Their behaviors have changed dramatically from say 20 years ago and so anglers are having to adapt to that that change in what and how to fish it and so if you came to harris 20 years ago and you fished hydrilla beds and you came back you know now and tried to do that same pattern you're going to be out of luck (laughs) you know and so and so i'll finish with this I'm not saying the population's not changing. You are correct. If you don't have good recruitment and you don't have fish to live in the system, um, keep coming through every year, and you had really good old fish like Kentucky Lake, for example, or something like that, and they die off and you didn't have real good recruitment for years on end, um, yeah, you're going to see a difference. But it takes time. Mm -hmm. I will tell you that bass populations, short of, and we'll get into this later, I'm sure, but bass populations as a whole, if they don't have something like an invasive species, fish species, or they don't have some type of disease come in upon them, they are the most stable fisheries in, on the planet, in my opinion. They definitely are the most stable fisheries in North Carolina. They, you can take data from Jordan Lake now. I'm not saying it doesn't go up and down a little bit, you know, ebbs and flows. But you can take j- data from Jordan Lake from the mid-'80s and compare that to J- Jordan Lake data from 2020, 
and they're going to look almost the same. Really? Bass populations are very, very stable. It's, and so people think there's been this massive change at Harris. There has been a change at Harris. I'm not discounting that at all. But as a whole, as so we're looking at the whole, yeah. you know, we're not looking at what you catch on the end of the line. We're catching, you know, we'll catch anywhere from 500 to 600 bass in less than a week. Mm-hmm. You know, as a whole, we haven't seen that decline yet. I'll put a caveat to that. A lot of times anglers see the decline about a year to two years ahead of our our data. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times you'll see a decline prior to, you'll see something happen prior to us. And that just happens to be more eyes on the water. And you just, you get the feel that it's different. You know, something something's changed. So time will tell with Harris. I, the last thing I'll say about Harris, and then I'll shut up. I'm talking way too much. <laughs> no, you're so good. I apologize awesome. for that. The last thing I'll say about Harris is the usage on the lake has changed. So now you got tons and tons and tons of wakeboard boats and mm. ski boats. Oh. And, and I mean, I'm not going down that road, but, <laughs> but, but that road does have an effect on how fish bite. Yep. Sure. I mean, absolutely. Because once again, we're only talking 4,000 acres and yeah. you can't use that entire 4,000 acres right. to do what they're doing. And so there's a lot of that lake that is now during those peak times from May to Labor Day, there's a lot of that lake that is just getting blasted by yeah. boats going up and down and up and down and up and down. And, up. and not only does it affect fish bite, it affects how you fish. Yep. Sure. Oh, absolutely. It takes your, it takes your mind off of what you're doing. It take, it, you know, you can't be stable long enough. It, it just affects a lot of things. And so it affects how you view the fishery because it's changing to you. You know, yeah. I'm a fisherman too. I fish all the time. So I, I get it, you know, like, this ain't what it used to be. I mean, I'll say that to myself yeah. all the time, and I'll be like, "Well, why isn't it that way?" Yeah, I, I think you 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 bring up a great point. Like, and and I hear anglers say it all the time about Harris. This place is a dump hole. This place is not what it used to be. But that's from the perspective of just a tournament angler, for the most part, right? And I'm not weighing the same bags, but they do they do have a they do have a broader perspective. The water clarity. Um, not, I don't, I wouldn't say so much the usage and stuff like that, but when you talk about things like the watershed, you talk about things like the bait fish, you talk about the, the, you know, the residential complexes that are being built around. Those are things a lot of times, a lot of people don't think about. You can go out on Harris and catch a crap ton of fish. The bank fishermen's probably not noticing a huge difference. In fact, for the bank fishermen, it's probably better because they really couldn't cast into the hydrilla. You know, anglers were spoiled for years on Harris with hydrilla because you could catch a bass anywhere all the time, and they were a lot of big bass. You it was, ha- you it was ha- basically fishing a barrel. It was. Back then. Yeah, yeah, it was. Now you have to change your techniques. You have to get good at your side scan imaging. You have to get good at knowing how the fish relate to cover. And I see a lot of North Carolina taking some appropriate steps to make that happen on the lake. Yeah, so I'll speak briefly to that. Our agency saw this, you know, because hydrilla was being removed, we saw a need to try to produce some forms of habitat that bass could could go to we one we wanted to replace as much vegetation as we could as we can um we've done a lot of artificial reef work out there we've 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 kind of tested some of the different approaches than what we've done in the past usually we would put reefs in pretty deep water 
really did you know it has it has its place and purpose but for a lake like harris you really need shallow water habitat a lot yeah. mm-hmm. and so we've you know we have whole coves it's nothing but habitat in those shallow coves and you know we we put signs up hey don't run in here with your motor wide open you might bust something you know kind of thing but our the long-term approach to harris is vegetation and will be vegetation that will be if we can get vegetation established at Harris, that will be the savior of the reservoir, in my opinion. Yep. Um, what I tell people all the time is, you know, an invasive plant like hydrilla, it's easy. It's bang. There it is. It goes. It can take off. It's just like an invasive fish. Bang. There it goes. It's, it's off and running. Um, but these native plants that we have that are native to North Carolina, they just take time. Yep. Um, it's, it's not a, it's not a two year thing. It's a 10, 15 year thing. And we've seen it work. We know it works, but it, it's just one of those things where it's just, we as, we as humans want it at the click wow. of, a, you know, yep. we want it now. And our culture is very much like that now than it was say 20 years ago. But, um, you know, it's just not how it works, you know? And so we're constantly planting plants in the, in the reservoir. We have to replant. Like yep. people think, well, that plant died. You don't know what you're doing. Well, that plant's going to die. Guess what? We're going to come back and plant it again and plant it again and plant it again. And eventually it will, it will work and it will take, Yep. Um, what, what it t- just takes, it just takes time. What, what species are uh, native out there at Harris that you guys are planting? Um, so at Harris and I'm, I'm really speaking off the cuff. There's, there's employees right now that are shaking their heads at me going, please don't do this. <laughs> um, <laughs> So there's different types of plants. So there's what they call immersed plants, which means plants that come out of the water, mm-hmm. stand up. Most of those are pretty much um, in the littoral zone, which is what they mean by that is right up against the shoreline, very shallow water. Um, most of those plants that we're using are water willow, pickerel weed, bulrushes. Our bread and butter is water willow. You can, yeah. pl- you can plant it on concrete. <laughs> um, it's really tough. It takes wave action really well. You see it a lot at Jordan. You yep. see it some at um, Tillery. Tillery. You, see it, till, you see it all over the place. It's one of our native plants that does really, really well. I mean, I haven't been to Harrison a year or two, but, you know, it had switchgrass forever around the uh, around the lake, which is a littoral plant. It's a little drier than, than water willow will be. It'll be a lot tighter to the bank. Water willow actually come out four or five feet in water depth. Yeah. Um, it can go up a, above that, but generally it hangs in that two foot or less area. Then it, then we got floating leaf um, floating leaf plants like um, white water lily, American water lotus, um, spider dock. Those are kind of like the lily pads that people like to fish. We're planting a lot of that. Mm-hmm. And then the hardest thing to get growing and takes the most time are submersed, which is what hydrilla was. Doesn't yeah. come above the water. It's big thick mats on you know in the entire water column. Um, some of those are uh, American pondweed. Um, we're trying our best with American eelgrass. It's it's a tough plant to get growing. Everything likes to eat it. Turtles love it. Think it's like cotton candy to them. Love to have some eelgrass <clears throat> out there. But but we're working at it. So um, we're working cotton on cotton candy. We're working we're working on <laughs> eelgrass, and we're we're also planting. We're trying to plant um, coontail where we can. Um, it can be a little aggressive, so we we try to pick and pick and choose where that is and it's it's a little different approach like you actually won't see us plant that in the reservoir what the technique is you put them in floating cages mm-hmm. and the as the as the cages float around the coontail drops out of the plant that's in the floating cages sinks to the bottom connects grows and there you have it yeah so. i know that's really aggressive so in my little lake i live on they've got coontail 
and milfoil, although they've been trying to kill it for years. But within within a, within a year, it matted out. Oh yeah, in, in different spots, and it was awesome. And but, it, and it really depends. Like I said, it depends on the lake. We d- we wouldn't do it in a in a gin clear lake because it would overtake it pretty quick. In a turbid lake like um like Harris, we would we would definitely try it there because it wouldn't probably wouldn't take over nearly as much. Yeah, I've seen eelgrass grow twenty feet. Wow. So it lo- just looks real- like looks like an underwater kelp forest. One one more on Harris, and we'll move on to invas- invasive species. I guess this goes for Harris and Jordan. You know, we talk about especially in the Piedmont region that that legal harvest isn't as popular. You know, you see more catch and release. So is mm-hmm. inherent with tournament fishing. There's some fish kill. Is that an important part of conservation when you don't have people eating fish? Is is that fish kill from tournaments? That's an interesting question to think about because, like, we've all gone down by Jordan after a Tuesday night tournament and seen twenty six pounders yeah. floating down there because no one knows how to. Yeah, uh, so that's it, a weird question. Um, it's a tough. I one mean, because I you mean, don't, don't get see me wrong. I've, I've had kill, that. But. I've had that question before. Um, I, I think the thing you have to think about is probably not from a tournament perspective. I think it's probably more a a responsible harvest by anglers. You know, if I was to, if I was targeting bass to harvest, I would generally focus on that twelve to fifteen inch range fish. Right. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't want to. I mean, personally, I wouldn't want to harvest um, a six pounder. That doesn't mean you can't harvest a six pounder. That's not my point. Right. If you want to do that, that's fine. Um, but generally, bass anglers don't think that way. So I'm thinking about as a bass angler and as me personally as a biologist, what's probably the most efficient way to thin the herd to allow more more uh more forage to be eaten by others and that's that that's that two-year-old fish which yeah. is that two to three-year-old fish which is that you're getting in that 10 inch to 15 inch range is really what you're looking at on okay. most reservoirs in our state and that's where the bulk of your population is going to be yeah you know because you think about a population when they recruit the first, what we call recruitment, which means they survived being a baby and they're into the fishery, that first year is this big high number. You know, let's say they, let's say I'm just using a number, don't take it as the actual number. Right, okay. Right. <laughs> let's say it was 10,000 fish, 10,000 largemouth made it in Harris the first year. Okay. By the second year, that number's probably down around two to 3,000 fish. Mm-hmm. I mean, just natural mortality is taking that many out, you know, just over okay. time. They, it's it's a tough life out there, in case you didn't know. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> 80% don't make it yeah. past the year. I don't want to be yeah. a fish baby. Yeah, no. exactly. <laughs> you don't want to be a fish baby of any kind. That's if you made it past the little baby stage. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. A little baby stage is even worse. <laughs> but so if you think about it that way, you know, it, you get this massive drop off. But then after that, it, it it's... So for those of you at home, it you know it starts out real high and it drops really quick, but then it does that. It's an opposite of the S curve, like yeah. The inverse S curve, yeah. It's a slope down, you know. It slopes way off real quick, and so if you're going to have an effect on har- with harvest, it's in those first two to three years when okay. that peak is high. If you're harvesting off on the tail end, you're really not doing a whole lot to the fishery. You're not freeing up enough resources. For these fish up here, you know, yep. you know, to but if you're freeing up resources in here, you're freeing up resources basically kind of for everybody right. that's yep. past that curve. And so, you know, my take home on harvest with largemouth, it one, if you see a stunted fishery, say it's your farm pond, 
if you got, you know, 12 inch bass swimming around, they all look like cigars and they need to eat five cheeseburgers. You need to thin the herd. Yeah, I right. mean, nothing personal. You need to thin the herd. And if that's what's happened on your municipal lake or happening on, say, Harris, for example, if that was where we were, you need to thin the herd. Now, back to your question about tournaments. Um, overall, do I think tournament mortality is a bad thing for the overall fishery? Probably not. Just in terms of um, what it does biologically to the fishery. Now, if it happened all the time, if it was something that was very consistent, yeah, over a period of time, you start losing a bunch of six-pounders, yeah, you don't have an issue. But I will say it's a bad look. Absolutely. You know, so, you know, for us to be conservationists, for us as anglers to be conservationists, and, you know, we're talking about catch and release, and then we release them, and then two days later, you know, they're up at the boat ramp belly up, you know, that's not a really good look. And so I'll be honest with you. I am a fan of the way Major League Fishing does their tournaments. I know that everybody can do that. I get it. Um, But if you're going to release the fish, particularly in high water temperatures, when you get past the month of middle of May in North Carolina, if you put a fish in a live well in the middle of May through probably the middle of October, I don't care how good your live well is, and you keep him there all day, he's dead two days later. I mean, he just is. I mean, that's just, I mean, I'm not, that's not a hundred percent, but it's, it's a high percentage. It's a high percentage of fish. What they're doing is they're stressed out because of that high water temperature. They're building up lactic acid in their bloodstream. Just like when you go and work out, you know, you're building up lactic acid in your muscles. Well, for them to overcome that, they have to have tons and tons of oxygen to get that lactic acid back. Basically, I'm shortening the biology biology lesson here. And when the water temperature is up, it holds less oxygen than colder water does. Mm -hmm. And so they're really struggling to get over that. And if they can't get over that lactic acid buildup in their bloodstream, they're going to suffocate, basically, roughly, is what happens. And they'll float up. And that's why you don't see it instantaneously unless there's some kind of damage or they've really stressed out. You won't see that fish die within the first 12 hours of being around it. But two days later, you go back to the boat ramp and that fish is belly up. Mm -hmm. It's because it's sat there and tried and tried and tried and tried to get over it. And it just can't do it. And finally, it just can't do it and it gives up. So we've talked about Sharon Harris and some of the struggles there, which I think is, I'm going to use a 50 cent word here, a good dichotomy of a reservoir and how different things change with grass and structure and, you and all that. You ain't from here. No, I'm not. That's why I use that word. Uh, <laughs> no, no, I wasn't dichotomy. It was reservoir. Reservoir. <laughs> no. Reservoir. How do you say it? How's North Carolina say it? Reservoir. Reservoir. Lake. Reservoir. I'll work on it. Or lake. I, lake. Yeah, I'll work on it. A lot of it. lake. <laughs> a lot of lake. Water. <laughs> but, um, and in that, we talked about hydrilla, you know, and, and we hear people all the time, oh, they killed all the, they killed all the grass. They killed all the grass. We know sure. it's an invasive species. So, you know, we have grass in North Carolina's invasive species. We also have the Alabama bass, spotted bass, whatever you want to call it, uh, getting into waterways as invasive species. So I guess talk, we can start, if there's anything you want to add about hydrilla management, because I think we covered it fairly well with Sharon Harris. We know there were other bodies of water where it was. What... What can be done about the, you know, Alabama bass or what is the, the management plan? How did it happen? Just, you know. Or do we just let it run wild? Yeah, I, I think we need to talk about it because we hear it all the time. Sure. Um, and just an educated, you know, why what has happened has happened and, and where we can go. 
So I'll tell you the whole story, and then you can call me a liar, and that's good. <laughs> then we'll be on equal footing, and we'll be good. No. Um, so if you go back to, well, let's go way back. Let's go back to probably the late 70s into the mid-80s. So these fish are Alabama bass. I'll start with that first, which is forever and a day we thought they were spotted bass. I was going to ask. Yep. Because you talk about Alabama bass, like being from Missouri originally, they've got spotted bass, but they also call them Kentuckys. Yep. So and I understand they're so different. For, so forever and a day, we all thought that the spotted bass from Kentucky, so northern spotted bass, a lot of people would call them, or they'd call them Kentucky spots, and the southern spotted bass were the same fish. They were just maybe a little bit different, but we all thought they were spotted bass. That's what everybody called them, and everybody still calls them spotted bass. Mm-hmm. Well, truth be told, they're actually two different species. Um, the 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 spotted bass from Alabama, which is now called the Alabama bass, the scientific name for it is Micropterus hinshali. Um, and then the northern spotted bass, or the Kentucky spotted bass, or just spotted bass, which is what it really is, is Micropterus punctulatus. So they are actually two different species of fish. Um, they act a little bit differently um, behaviorally. They inhabit their the habitats they inhabit tend to be just a touch different. Um, visually, for most anglers, you're not going to be able to really tell the difference. You got to count lateral lines scales so the scales on the lateral line you know what the lateral line is Mm -hmm. is that line that goes down the fish um in a in a spotted bass from the north i think they are 70 and under the scales if you count 70 scales and under it's a it's a northern spotted bass if you count 71 and over it's alabama bass that's basically really the only difference what i tell people is a lot of times that that alabama spot has what looks like a a little bit narrower area towards the base near the tail called the the fancy word for that is caudal peduncle but that area right there looks like a handle right before it gets into the the fin okay you yeah, know that yeah. part right at the base of the fish um looks a little elongated a little narrower than the than the northern spot does but you can't hang your hat on that it's really scale count but anyway did you just um, say peduncle yeah, caudal oh. peduncle caudal, that's that caudal is definitely so it's a word. word we need to pay attention to the Caudal peed uncle. Caudal peed uncle. Caudal peed uncle. Yeah. Okay, I just, I just. Have or to... you can just do like everybody else and call them spotted bass and go home. <laughs> Let me touch the tongue. Is it rigid? Nah, check their peed uncle. <laughs> <laughs> um, All right, sorry. No, you're fine. So what we what we started noticing was this migration out of Alabama. So that's where they're from. Um, there's a couple of rivers in Alabama that they're they're actually native to. We started seeing this migration up through northern Georgia, Lake Lanier, mm-hmm. um, but those, how, those areas in there. How'd they get here? It's I'm kind tell, of divide. I'm, tell, I'm, tell, I'm, tell, I'm telling you. I'm Let telling the man you. talk. Calm your pedal. <laughs> <laughs> and so then it, if you kind of just go mm-hmm. up through the foothill region of South Carolina, the upstate part of South Carolina, Lake Hartwell, um, those the upper Catawba area, um, we started seeing them in there. And then in, the first time we ever saw them in North Carolina was on a reservoir that is basically straddles Georgia and North Carolina Lake Chattoog out yep. in the very okay. western part of the state. Um, and those fish showed up in the early 90s, probably like 1990, maybe 1989. We started seeing spotted bass there. And, um, you know, then in the late 90s, 
uh, they showed up in Lake Norman. Uh, I think the first one was probably 98 or 99. They showed up in Lake Norman in the, in the, in the middle part of the Catawba Basin. So that's the, for those of you listening, that is the reservoir just north of Charlotte mm-hmm. in the Mooresville area on the Catawba Basin. And it seemed to be kind of contained to Norman for a few years. And we have just seen this mass movement. It went over to Moss Lake, which is a small reservoir on the Broad River, um, kind of just west of Lake Norman. And then it's moved all up the Catawba chain. It's moved all down the Catawba chain. It's in the Yadkin PD chain. Um, it's in every reservoir in the western half of our, in the western third, like the Appalachians, all those like Fontana, mm-hmm. Santitla, you name them. They got them. Um, we've now seen them in the Roanoke Basin. Mm. We're 100% positive they're in the Tar River Basin. Um, really, the only res- the only systems we have not seen them in North Carolina is in the in the Noose Basin, which would be uh, Falls Lake mm-hmm. and and the river that flows down below that, and in the Cape Fear Basin, which is Jordan Lake, Harris Lake, those areas. So those are really the three res- three big reservoirs in our state that have not been touched or not potentially touched by Alabama Pass. Yet. Yet. Um, that movement has, has been 100% by anglers. Anglers have moved that fish 100%. That has not been a, that has not been a resource agency move. Um, you know, anglers... I can tell you at Norman, for example, anglers were not happy with the largemouth bass fishery there. So in my opinion, they took it upon themselves to move Alabama bass there. Um, And the honeymoon's great. I ain't going to lie to you. The honeymoon is great. That first five years of an invasion with an invasive fish, it looks like it's gangbusters. You're like, man, this is the best thing we ever did. And then comes the reality of what it actually is going to do. And so what happens with Alabama bass is, is twofold. It depends on the species of bass that you that you stock them in the reservoir with. If it's largemouth, it's one thing. If it's smallmouth, it's another. If it's actually spotted bass, like the northern spotted bass, it's a, it's similar to smallmouth. So I'll talk about largemouth. So at Lake Norman, what they did, um, they came in, they start reproducing. They're really good at that. They're like kind of like rabbits and crappies. They 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 know how to overproduce in a very short period of time. And what they do is they they eventually push largemouth out of their habitats. They outcompete them, and so whereas largemouth were um, were th- all throughout Lake Norman, they weren't great. So I'll say that up front at Lake Norman, largemouth just weren't a great species there. But where largemouth used to be all throughout Lake Norman, now they're pushed in the very backs of coves for the most part. Doesn't mean you won't catch one on the main lake. But they're pushed primarily in the very backs of coves, in the upper riverine section, um, the places that these Alabama bass really don't like. Alabama bass love open water. They love deep, deep ledges and that kind of stuff. They'll spawn in, heck, they'll spawn in 15 foot of water. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you see them in 15 foot of water at Lake Norman spawning. Um, whereas largemouth wouldn't dare do that. No. You know, largemouth's going to be right up on the bank, as, as y'all all know. And so... What that's doing is, so every fishery that that's happening in now across the state, it happens in different speeds because the clearer the lake is, the faster it happens. So at Lake Norman, it's super gin clear in most of the lake, um, very unproductive system, happens bang. Because there's limited resources, they can really take over in a very short period of time. Forever and a day, we thought, okay, 
they'll take over these kind of limited resource areas that are gin clear lakes that you see, and they might not do that in these more turbid, more productive type systems like, say, a Jordan or a Harris would be, right? Well, now we've come to the conclusion that they're going to do it there, too. Yeah. Um, like Lake Hickory is a really good example. Lake Hickory is one of those places where um, we knew Alabama bass were there. Um, we didn't think they were taken over because of that that theory that we had working. This is all new to us because it's all new biology. We're, we're watching it happen right in front of our eyes. Um, but now at Hickory, it's it's happening there, too, that, that overtakes. So what about Lake James? Oh, so that's a different story. So at Lake James, so I talked about what they do with largemouth. This is what they do with smallmouth. Smallmouth is a totally different story because they pretty much can hybridize with a, with a pure smallmouth. So say an Alabama bass and a smallmouth come together, they make a baby and you get this thing called a mean mouth. Mean mouth yeah. Yeah. A lot of people hear about mean mouths. Mm-hmm. And so... Like I said, that honeymoon period is is awesome. You know, these mean mouths, they grow five, six pounds. Fishing's never been better at Lake James. Okay? That's what we hear. Um, time to go. And then, yeah, now's the time to go. Because... And keep them. Because yeah. eight to ten years from now, that's not going to be the story. Because what's going to happen is they basically keep reproducing with smallmouth. Keep reproducing with smallmouth. And they're reproducing with the hybrids. So these Alabama bass continue to put their genes into the gene pool over and over and over again. And so first you got a 50-50 fish, then you got a 70% Alabama, 30% smallmouth, then you got an 80% Alabama, 20% smallmouth, then you got a 90 and a 10, then you got a 100 and a 0, and a 100 and a 0, and a 100 and a 0. And what happens is, whereas largemouth will exist on the landscape, they will be much more reduced the populations will be much, much more reduced than they were, say, before Alabama bass came. Smallmouth aren't going to exist hmm. in the presence of an Alabama bass, or it will be very, very limited. Um, I, I mean, we can show you case after case of that example. Lake Chattoog, where this first started in, say, 1990, you know, that lake, smallmouth bass fishery is gone doesn't mm-hmm. exist. It's all Alabama bass at this point. I mean, there might be a largemouth or two there, but it was a smallmouth bass fishery, just like Lake James was, yeah. for the most part, a smallmouth bass fishery. James is a lot less. So we can show you examples. Chattooga is gone. You go to Fontana, that introduction's a little earlier than, say, Lake James. And so you're already seeing Fontana's almost to the point where smallmouth are not going to exist there. Mm-hmm. And James is a little bit further behind that. James is in that mean mouth, we love it, think it's great thing. But 10 years from now, those smallmouth are going to be gone. How long do you think they've been in James? I think the first one we saw was about 10 years ago. So that that introduction takes whatever, whether it's whether it's with the largemouth or with, um, with smallmouth, the whole thing takes about 20 years. So from the time Alabama bass get introduced to the time it kind of levels off and kind of you figure out what the lake's going to be from that point forward, it's pretty much about a 20-year span. And with James, um, I assume they're largemouth because that's what I thought I caught there. Otherwise, they were big uh, spotted bass invasion. I haven't been up to James for about five years. But how, how do the 
the, the spotted bass, if they're really competing for the smallmouth resources, or how are the largemouth affected at a place where you now have three species of bass? It's the same. It, they're, they're affecting largemouth the same everywhere. They're okay. just pushing them to the back. So what happens with smallmouth, particularly in reservoirs, is that they are inhabiting the exact same habitats. Yeah. That's why you get in the hybridization. They, could, they, can, they can hybridize with a largemouth, but what happens is they're not spawning in, really in the same areas. It happens early on. When Alabama bass first show up, you will see hybrids between Alabama bass and largemouth. But within the first three to five years, that goes away because what the Alabama bass have done is said, get out of town. Yeah. You know, yeah. we're, there's so many of us, we don't have room for you anymore. We're pushing you out. And so the largemouth just go away in the sense of they're just pushed out of that habitat so they don't hybridize anymore. Whereas the smallmouth and the smallmouth don't want to do that. And they want to be out in that open water, you know, kind of deeper cliffs and, you know, rock ledges and that kind of stuff. Exactly where that spotted bass wants to be. I keep calling them spotted bass. But anyway, exactly where that Alabama bass wants to be. And so that hybridization just keeps happening over and over and over again. And eventually you just lose all the genetics out of a smallmouth. So besides the the spots, the Alabama spots, mm-hmm. pushing the largemouth out of that territory, pushing them to the banks or the backs of the coves in certain lakes, and then crossbreeding with smallies, what what are they also doing to like the the the, the food source, the shad, the threadfin, the herring, the crawdads, all that stuff? What are they doing so, to that? So it's the same thing I talked about in the previous segment when I was talking about there's only so many mouths you can feed. Yeah. And what Alabama bass are really good at doing is really good at reproducing, but you're not you're not increasing the food base. Like right. people all the time tell us as biologists, we want more forage. Well, great. I want a million dollars. You know, and I don't, and I'm, I say that tongue in cheek and, and cause I get tired of that question, yeah. I guess. Yeah. But the truth of the matter is your forage base is your forage base. Yeah. It is the, it is the nutrient load that your system gets. Now that can go up and down. You can get more nutrient load, but generally reservoirs in North Carolina, the nutrient load is pretty, if like Norman has always been clear and been unproductive. Hickory has always been productive. High Rock has always been productive. Jordan's always been productive. Now, Jordan's not going to clear up tomorrow. Mm. You know, we're not going to become an unproductive system in Jordan tomorrow. It's probably always going to be productive at some level. That doesn't mean it doesn't do this. It just means it, you are what you are. Right. Mm-hmm. And you that's the start. And so the it's it's back to seventh grade biology, guys. The The broader and wider that base is at the bottom the more miles you can feed at the top. If it's narrow, it's going to be narrow at the top. Yep. Yep. And and so at Norman, it's already narrow. Hmm. And we're getting, you know, and so you're putting an invasive fish that can reproduce like crazy. On top of that, there's other invasive fish that have come along. You look at white perch. Yep. You know, white perch is native to North Carolina along the coast, but it's not native to our Piedmont and our and our mountain region. I did not know and that. And white perch have drastically, oh, yeah. I mean, they've marched ac- west across the state. Anglers have literally marched them west across the state. And so you you have taken two species of fish, Alabama bass and white perch, who in the biological world, we call them highly fecund, meaning that they have a lot of babies. They produce a lot of babies, which is a lot of mouths to feed. And just that that production over and over and over and over again is taking all those resources away from all the other things that you like to fish for, like largemouth and smallmouth and crappies. I mean, you want to put a death nail in a crappie population? 
introduce white perch. Yeah. It's going to hurt them bad. Mm. Now, if they grew up together, like Jordan Lake, for example, they grow up together, doesn't hurt them as much. But if you go out to the Catawba Basin and you put in a white perch, crappy don't know what to do with those things. Mm. It's like, I don't know what to do now. So there's more invasives besides just bass. Yeah. I mean, the reason we talk about Alabama bass all the time is because, you know, I stood up in front of groups 10 years ago and people kind of looked at me like I had four heads, which maybe I do. You know, I kept telling them this is going to change the landscape of bass fishing in North Carolina. The bass fishing, if you are from here, the bass fishing you knew in the 1980s and 1990s will be gone. And we're going to be stuck with spotted bass fisheries. That's what we're going to be stuck with. Not even good spotted bass fisheries. Yeah. You know, because it's an invasive fish. If it was a spotted bass fishery in Alabama, all right, let's. Yeah, it's Coosa ro- River. Yeah, we're man, it's, it's rocket fuel. I mean, it's it, it's like a bass on steroids. And these fish are fun to catch. I'm not discounting them at all. Um, but we're changing the landscape. Our anglers are changing the landscape of bass fishing in North Carolina. So, so if you loved. You know, eight ten pound largemouth coming out of Gaston. You can kiss that goodbye. Probably should not have stocked spotted bass there. It once Just you saying. catch one it's in a body of water, is it already too late? It's too late. If you see them, it's too late. Um, there's nothing we can do as a well. Here's as what, outdoorsmen or no. Here's what we can do. So we have in the state of North Carolina, what we have done is we've taken approach of we're not protecting this fish. Um, it's it's open season. Our native spotted bass, which were really only in the very western edge of the state, so like talking about New River, um, and I'll get them wrong, some places out like the Nantahala and some of those places that flow to Tennessee, those had native spotted bass, meaning native northern spotted bass. Yeah. Well, they're all gone anyway because Alabama bass got in there and Gene swamped them, which is what they do to smallmouth, and they're gone. So we just open season because nobody can tell the difference between an Alabama and a spotted bass. We open season on Alabama and spotted bass. You can harvest as many as you want. If you want to take two coolers full home with you, God bless you. You know, I mean, seriously, if that's what you want to do. Um, And what we can do is thin the herd. And thinning the herd will potentially make the fishery better. Talking about just like we talked about with largemouth. It can make the fishery better in that we might get some bigger spotted bass out of that. Might get a three-pounder or a four-pounder, maybe even a five-pounder you know, spotted bass to come out of that. It might relieve some pressure on largemouth at some level. You hear a lot of mites, right? Yep. Yeah. Sounds like we need about hundreds of thousands of coolers or spotted yeah. bass to come out you, of you, some it, of these lakes. It might relieve the pressure on largemouth. There's no hope for smallmouth. I mean, I'll just, hmm. I don't mean that in an ugly way. No. It's, you know, our, our hope is, is that, because these things are not going to stay in reservoirs. They go down the rivers from the reservoirs. Our hope is when they get in our native smallmouth rivers that the smallmouth have a, a little bit of an upper hand because it's not an artificial system. It's not a reservoir. It's their actual native mm-hmm. river that they might be able to survive that with, with Alabama bass. But we don't know because we really don't have them in our rivers yet, but they're coming. It's just a matter of time. Um, and so we don't really know what that's going to look like. But, you know, in a reservoir system – Man, all I can tell you to do is take them home with you, eat them. They're good to eat. I mean, they really are. They're, they I've, are. Eat, I've eat yep. a lot of them, and they're they're really good to eat. I, I'm not gonna say they're a walleye, but they're close to mm. a walleye. Right, I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean they are. They're they're, 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 they're the, good. The, the texture's different than a largemouth. Um, I've only had northern, yeah. and, and this this 
yeah, I'm glad you're here to talk about this, Corey, because it, it kind of blows my mind because I'm used to back in Missouri and Bull Shoals, you've got all three species in the, what was the northern spotted. So yep. you can catch them all in the same point in the summertime, back to back to back, but it's they're native yep. there. So they, yep. they it, that, and that is that is all the difference right there. If they're native to the system, these fish have, you know, come together and know what they're doing and, and know how to coexist and all that. But when you throw something invasive in, whether it's a predator or not even a predator, it can be a forage fish that's invasive. If that is not meant to be there, it changes the landscape. I mean, I can tell you forage fish where, where I'll give you an example, river herring, which is native to our Atlantic Slope rivers. So like the Roanoke, the Noose, mm-hmm. the Tar, the Cape Fear. That's two different species of fish. It's blue, blueback and alewife. Um, those are native. They come out of the ocean out of the Bay of Fundy, come all the way down, come all the way up, spawn, go back. Great. Well, anglers have taken it upon themselves uh, to to move these fish because they're a great bait fish. I mean, they are. They're a great forage fish. Um, they're, they're good to fish with, particularly for stripers and for, for catfishing. Um, a lot of people have used them. Well, we've migrated them throughout the state of North Carolina. Um, that has detrimental effects. People don't realize it, but it it those fish act different than gizzard shad and thread fins do. Um, they, they inhabit different parts of the water. It causes massive fish kills in striper, striped bass populations in the summertime because they inhabit different water. They trap stripers in dead oxygen areas, and boom, there goes the stripers. They're all dead. But what they really do is there are certain, there are certain species of predators that just can't handle them at all. Walleye is a really good example. Um, what they do is they... Not only do they eat the eggs of those predators in the spring runs when they go up the rivers mm-hmm. to spawn, but if they're eaten by those predators, like say walleye eats a river herring, there's a there's a chemical that those fish release as they're being consumed. That and it's thiamine and there's all kinds of. But anyway, um, what happens is it basically turns their eggs into nothing. Turns the walleye's eggs into nothing. They're infertile. Like, well, they're not infertile, but their eggs are basically useless. For that cycle, it turns, that year. It turns into mush. Well, you say for that year, but once it's established in the lake, it's every year. Oh, oh wow. And so if you, don't, if you don't, because you're eating them all the time, so what happens is you cause a recruitment failure, meaning that eventually you don't make any babies. And so Lake James walleye, for example, um, that's exactly what it went through. The walleye were consuming the river herring that were introduced, and the fishery collapsed. I mean, fell apart. And the only reason we have walleye today is because we're stocking the pee out of them. I mean, the Wildlife Commission is. Yeah. And if we ever take our foot off the gas... It's done again. It's done again. You know, uh, I was just up there last week, and I asked the guy that's kind of overseeing all that, and I said, are we seeing any fish being spawned naturally? Because we got a lot of adult fish back in the population. He's like, no, it's 100% us. Good. Meaning 100% Wildlife Commission stockings. And so the take home to all that whole thing is stop moving fish. Yep. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I know you think it's a great idea. I mean, just even just even moving largemouth is a big deal because you could take largemouth from a non-largemouth bass, bass virus place or or from a largemouth bass virus place and move it to a non-largemouth bass virus place, and you've now introduced largemouth bass virus to that reservoir, and you have no idea that you've just done it. I am so glad you said that. During the tournament yesterday, um, I'm not going to name his name. for I don't remember his name, but he was talking about, like, yeah, you know, I think I want to take some largemouth out of here and put them in my private pond, and I said, don't do that. 
don't do that. You could introduce something into a water system. You have no idea if that pond is going to flood, break open, go into a stream or a natural waterway. There's so many second, second and third order effects of doing something. Yeah. The best thing you can do is order fish that to yeah. put in your pond, right? And it comes from a clean source. Exactly. They're, and they're younger, usually generally younger, doesn't have any hitchhikers, doesn't have disease, doesn't have all the things old people like us have. Yeah. Um, well, now now I'm scared. Because I, I, look, I did it once. I caught a white bass of Jordan and I was going to cook them, but then I was like, no, I got too tired. So I tossed them in the lake out back. Mm. Hopefully, you go, hopefully it's just one male and there's no more in there. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, the, the, I won't know. be doing that anymore because uh, I <laughs> learned something today. You know, 20% of the time probably has no effect whatsoever, right? It's just that you're going to have, you're just risking too many things. And honestly, taking it from one public body of water to another public body of water is illegal. It's yeah. against the law. Now, you got to be caught doing it and all that jazz, but still, it's it's against the law. Um, we are trying private. To, we're trying to, yeah, no, no, no. I, I understand <laughs> you put it take in a pond. Out. No, I wasn't saying what you were doing is against <laughs> the law. Don't do that to remain silent. We have to edit this part out here. Ben's like, it's time to go. But the the key take home of that is, is that there, there, and there are a lot of other hitchhikers, you know, that get on boats and get on trailers mm, and get right. on things yeah. like that. I mean, there are organisms, whether it be zebra mussels or crayfish that are not native to, you know, plants that we don't want. I mean, everybody loves hydrilla. Okay, great. Hydrilla is one thing, but there are some plants that, man, I'm telling you, we do not want in the state of yeah. North Carolina. And, and it's so important to clean your gear. Um, you know, we use that mantra all the time, clean, drain, dry, never move. And it's very, very true with aquatic organisms because once they're introduced they're there there's i mean short of the apocalypse there's no getting rid of them mm. you know and and there's there's not any getting rid of this alabama bass they're here you know i would like for them not to come to the noose and the cape fear drainages i'd like to keep them out of that but i i'm not a fool either i know it's going to be very difficult because it only takes one angler to do it. You know, he, you know, Corey and the wildlife commission, they're not very smart. They're a bunch of morons. I know better. I'm going to do it. And I'm just telling you, we, we have so many examples of how bad it is that I'm not even sure why people argue with me anymore about how good it is. Yeah. And that's, that's part of the reason I wanted to have you on is because we hear it at shows or at All tournaments. Yeah. Oh, the, the wildlife resource commission, they have no idea what they're doing. They're blah, blah, blah. Well, look at what anglers have done. They've destroyed fisheries. They've ruined, they're essentially going well, to extinct you, smallmouth bass if, from if our you, lakes. Yeah. If you love, if you love smallmouth bass fishing in Western North Carolina, if you love largemouth bass fishing in all of North Carolina, you're doing a great disservice to the state of North Carolina and to and to your heritage of what you're trying to pass down to your kids. And I'm not trying to oversell it. I'm just yeah. being honest. Yeah. Like those things aren't going to. There are native black bass species in North Carolina that are. I mean, in South Carolina, that like the shoal bass, the Tallapoosa bass, the Bartram's bass. These are basses that people fish for. They're going extinct. Right. Because of this move, mm. this one move. And so the take home is just, just don't move fish. I mean, just please just don't move fish that at the end of the day, if you could do anything, just don't do that. We can work on all the other stuff and talk to us. We want to hear from you. We, we don't think we got that 
the the answer on everything, right? Right. You know, we like hearing from anglers. That's why we started our podcast. That's why I'm on this podcast. Yep. You know, is to talk to you guys and, and to get conversations started because we do want to hear from you. But moving fish is a bad thing. Yeah. So don't move them. Yeah. So, Corey, we've talked. Sharon Harris, quite, we've, we've had a lot of questions about slot limits, things like that. When I talked to some folks that I know listened and asked, told them that you were coming on, Hydrilla, of course, came up. We've talked about that. We've talked about the dang Alabama bass and opened my eyes, I know, to just how bad they can be. And I think, you know, I always questioned about bait fish. Like, they would have lists, certain states would have lists, like, oh, you can't or can't use this, can't or can't. It never made sense to me. You know, I was younger. A fish is a fish, right? Well, now... I mean, you, you destroyed a walleye population just because of the bait fish that yeah. they were eating. And that was all yeah. because fishermen brought them in there because they thought they knew better than the people that study this for a living. So the last thing we, we and got... We, old, and we're fishermen too. Most oh, absolutely. Of us. Most yeah, absolutely. of us are anglers. Yeah. That's why we got well, into the Well, that's how business. you got a passion for it, right? Yeah, you spent time. It was something you loved. The and, vast majority of us are, are anglers. So, you know, when we... I'll say this. When we, when, when we put out regulations or anything, we're affecting us too, yeah. you know? And so... What we're doing as biologists is we're trying to think about the long term. We're not thinking in the here and now. So a lot of times we'll put a restrictive regulation on something where we're actually trying to make it better over the long term. We're trying to conserve that species way out into the future, not only for us right now, but for for your children, your grandchildren. And I'm not trying to bring your youth into it because everybody brings youth when they're trying to win an argument. But, but <laughs> No, but it's true. It's for the youth. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because yeah. we are. We have to conserve the resource for Yeah, yeah. we're, we're looking for the long-term success of the resource. That's yeah. what we're looking for. And so um, it affects us too. Yeah. You know, we, we like to go fishing. We like to, I like to eat fish. You can look at me and tell I like to eat. So, I mean, we, you know, we like all of those things and that's why we got in this field. And so we're one of y'all. You know, in the end, and um, you know, the reason, like I said before, the reason I'm on podcasts and the reason we have our own podcast is we want to create a conversation with our anglers and with industry and with all those people that that have an effect on our on conservation in North Carolina, yeah. particularly aquatic conservation in North Carolina. We want to have those conversations because I think it's really important. Forever in a day, you know, when I started my career 20 years ago or 25 years ago now. You know, a lot of that was pretty separated. You know, the biologists were over here, the anglers were over here, and the industry was over here. And I see that getting closer and closer together Absolutely. over time. And I think that's a great thing. I think the more voices, the more power we have and yep. the more things we can do together. Yeah, I think you see more companies in, in the indoors, oh, outdoor space industry sure. yep. taking more serious steps towards conservation. It used to just kind of be buzzwords, right? You'd hear everybody, oh, mm -hmm. plastic. Pl and then they'd give out a thousand plastic bottles. Well, now... I use Costa because they've really, and Yeti's another one that's really stepped up at events and things. Costa, when they have their parties at these shows and stuff or whatever it is, they're giving out like metal cups now. No. So it's not just a piece of plastic that's going to end up in a landfill or end up somewhere. Yeah, um, there's a lot of companies that are doing that. One that's been real beneficial in North Carolina for us has been AFCO. AFCO yes. has been fantastic. They, you know, they, they truly have conservation in mind um, when their whole their whole company system is set up to to give back mm -hmm. um they 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 pretty much put a percentage of their of their profits each year back into conservation they've they've given us a hundred grand for a greenhouse to grow plants for bass for bass habitat that's amazing um and so that that you know that's huge for us yeah. and um it, it'll put us in a place for growing that kind of stuff 
it'll put us in a place that we've never been in. That's yeah. awesome. And so, you know, I, I, I give credit to the industry because it's not cheap. I mean, you know, it's it's something that's eaten away at their profits. They're all already giving money through, you know, the sport fish grants and all yeah. that, which we can talk about later at some other point. But, um, you know, it might, I, I give them credit for doing it. It might that. eat at their profits right now, but they're doing it so that they have a business in the future. Well, you know, you know, I mean? yeah. you know I, I've talked to Bill Shedd at AFCO numerous times about this, and, and a lot of these companies think this way, so it's not just AFCO. I'm just pointing them out because yeah. they've been very beneficial to us. But, um, you know, a lot of these owners, and, and one, a lot of them are family-owned, mm-hmm. um, so they, they think about those kinds of things. They think about the long-term future of the industry. They think about the long-term future of conservation. And so it, it really is about conservation. I mean, the Shedd family has been conserving things both in the saltwater world and now in the freshwater world. They've really gotten into into bass for sure um, for, for decades, you know. Yeah. And so that's been something that – and a lot of these companies, when you talk to their owners and talk to the people that work for them, they're thinking about those kinds of things. I mean, they're thinking about how can I make a difference, you know, from a conservation perspective, which I think is a great thing. And, yeah, and, it's amazing. And I think we uh, we see some uh, a program coming along that kind of combines all those three three entities. So the anglers, the companies slash nonprofits, and, and now the state of North Carolina. Um, sounds like there is a, a bass stocking program that that is coming together, hopefully over the next year or two to get some uh, F1 bass here in North Carolina. So if you want to, I don't know if you want to talk about that a sure, little bit. And- sure. So we, we decided, hmm, wow, let me think, probably 2018, 2019 to really start investigating F1 bass. So I'm going to explain F1 bass because nobody understands it. No, uh, very few. That was going to be my first question. <laughs> very few. So an F1, F1 is just a genetic term. F1 could be F1 of anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and what it is, is it's a cross, you know, it's, it's basically a hybrid, hybrid cross that we're creating. And F1 is just generation one is what it means. Um, you can have F2s, which is generation two, but anyway, so in the largemouth world, that is a Northern largemouth bass and a Florida largemouth bass. So you got to have a genetically pure Northern and a genetically pure Florida have babies. And what that gives you, it gives you a 50-50 largemouth in Florida. So it's got 50% northern in it. It's got 50% Florida in it. And that 50-50 cross is very important. It gives you kind of the best of both worlds between the northern and the Florida. It gives you the growth rates of a Florida, but it also gives you the feeding behavior of a northern, for example. Um, So the further north you go in the bass world, for all you bass anglers out there, you know this. After a cold front in Florida, what happens? They shut off. They yep, don't bite, yes. you know, all that kind of jazz. And so we have a lot more cold fronts than Florida does. So we have to be cognizant of just pure Florida bass. We have some pure Florida bass in North Carolina. They generally are on the coast where it's warmer. They tend to do better there. Um, but so, but also that 50-50 cross gives you what they call hybrid vigor, meaning that that first generation, they tend to eat more, they tend to grow faster um, because they're hybrids. Um, and so we, we, back in 2019, we decided we wanted to investigate this as a tool for augmenting largemouth bass populations. So one, it's not getting rid of spotted bass. It's not getting rid of Alabama bass. So that's the first thing you need to know right off the bat. It's it's not going to do anything. It's not going to. They're still a largemouth, yep. even though they're even though they're F one largemouth. They're still a largemouth. So they're going to have the same problems they have with Alabama bass that a 
that a other largemouth would have. So what we're trying to do is augment the largemouth bass populations that we do have to maybe get bigger, faster growing largemouth in those populations. That's our that's our goal. And it's an experiment. We don't know if this is going to work. Yeah. Um, we hope it does. We want it to work. Um, we want it to be a tool where we can, and this is really kind of the first tool in in the bass world that we've really had to truly augment populations. Populations generally have done well on their own, and we really haven't been haven't had to do a whole lot for bass anglers in terms of having bass on the landscape. Now, with Alabama bass on the landscape and this tool, we would like to see what we can do to help largemouth bass. We don't have that tool for smallmouth. You know, this is only in the in the largemouth bass world and so we're doing this in three lakes we're doing this at norman we're doing this at jordan and we're doing this at gaston and you say well why would you pick those three well they're three different lakes they're not really it's not about size it's about productivity levels you got a low productivity level in 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 norman you got a what we call mesotrophic which is a middle productivity level in gaston and then you have a eutrophic system, which is a highly productive system in Jordan. And so we're trying to test, does it work in all three? Does it just work in one type of situation? Some of them have Alabama bass, some of them don't. So we're really not trying to test it in the light of Alabama bass. We're trying to test it in the light of the largemouth that are already there. Mm-hmm. And so that that is the test. That is the experiment. It'll take five to ten years. We'll stock them for five to ten years in those systems. And, you know, hopefully we'll get results back saying the things we're going to test, do they exist after they've been stocked? You know, do they stay on the landscape? Do they look better than the largemouth bass that are there naturally Mm -hmm. that aren't F1s? Um, You know, and, you know, are they fatter? Do they grow faster? You know, all those things that we think they're going to do. We're going to test all of that. And then if it's a tool that we can use, We'll take it on the road, so to speak. You know, we'll we'll yeah. look at other largemouth bass systems that we can maybe possibly augment, and so that's the purpose of the of the experiment of the project that we have in North Carolina. Um, other states have tried this. Uh, Virginia's in the midst of it. Um, it's been hit or miss. It's been both good and bad. Um, other states have done just straight Floridas, um, Tennessee, Chickamauga. That was a straight Florida bass, 100% Florida, which they had a 100% northern bass population in their lake. And so when they stocked 100%, so they're, making, they're making F1s. Now, here's the take home. F1s can still reproduce. But when an F1 reproduces with an F1 or anything else, it's not F1 anymore. So you lose that hybrid vigor. You lo- it just becomes a it just becomes another washout largemouth. I hate to use that word, <laughs> but it just becomes another largemouth, and you lose that hybrid vigor. So, in order to keep F ones on the landscape, we have to keep stocking F ones because you got to yeah. have that northern. You got to have a hundred percent northern and a hundred percent Florida parent to make that F one. I've heard people say, "Well, we're going to put Florida genetics in our system by stocking F ones." Well, yeah, you're right, but that's not the point of this. Right? You know, this is F ones. This is I would attribute it to the same as like hybrid striped bass fisheries where we stock hybrid striped bass year after year after year and you get that hybrid striped bass on the landscape. This is exactly what F1s are. They're they're basically a hybrid, even though they can reproduce, whereas the hybrid striped bass really don't. These guys can reproduce, but once they reproduce, the genetics just wash back out. So now take all that back out and say, well, what does our genetics look like in North Carolina? We're a melting pot. We got northern alleles and... 
Florida alleles, which means genes in every system we have. You go to Norman, it's more northern than it is Florida, but every every fish is a mutt. You know, yeah, you go yeah. to Jordan, every fish is a mutt. We've seen, we have tested genetics on largemouth throughout the state of North Carolina. I think in, man, we've tested thousands of fish um, through the University of Auburn has done the genetics work, but we've collected all these fin clips. That's what he was doing. That's what Seth was doing at the boat ramp the other day, okay. was collecting fin yeah. clips to see what the gene- genetic makeup of those fish are. And the truth be told is, I think we've seen one pure northern and we've seen like two pure Floridas. Wow. But the trend is the coastal plain fish tend to be more Florida, and the further west you go, you tend to see more northerns. And so the kind of the theory is is that Florida bass, which they may get split out in their own species at some point. Geneticists are the worst. But <laughs> they may get split out in their own species someday. But um, the the theory is, is those Florida bass kind of inhabited Florida, coastal Georgia, coastal South Carolina, and coastal North Carolina. And then it kind of drops off after coastal. It, it really don't go into coastal Virginia all that much. And the northern bass were coming from the north, you know, down into our into our western part of our state. And so that's why we have all kinds of genetics. And we've stocked bass in places. And we didn't know... 30 years ago, we didn't know there was northerns in Florida's. So right. we were stocking a largemouth. We would stock largemouth large mouth that we got from our hatchery out of Watha, which is down near Wilmington. I wonder what genetic makeup they were. Yep. They were yeah. probably mostly Florida's, right? Well, we took them and we trucked them over to Lake James and stocked them. I mean, I'm using that as an example. Yeah, yeah. It's not exactly what we did, but put them in Lake James, which probably already had northern largemouth. And now we got mutts. And those, just like Alabama bass spread by anglers, we've spread genetics too. So we're guilty as well. I mean, we brought blue cats and flatheads here. So thank yeah, you. Yeah. You know, the Wildlife Commission has done its fair share of, of doing the wrong thing too. <laughs> so, you know, we got to take our own medicine at times. But but the point is, is it's not to eradicate no, the Alabama It's not going to happen. Right? That, that, that's not going to happen. It's to augment the yeah. existing largemouth population. And, yeah. and I'm glad that you said that because... I had the misconception, yeah. the misperception that it was to kill off the Alabama. Me too. Control the spotted bass population. And, and we, when we first read about it, and we talked about it briefly in the podcast, and and because my my concern or question was like, why are why they, Jordan? Why Jordan when they're yeah. massive fish and that it's a very productive lake and super, yeah. super super healthy? But you laid it out perfect, Corey. Like yeah. it's an experiment to see the reactions in these bodies of water, so we could replicate or make changes or or whatever in the future. And, and we've done the genetics work in these places that we're going. So we already know we got mutts. If we had a pure northern or a pure Florida or whatever, we wouldn't touch it. I mean, right. I'll just be honest with you. We, we would just be like, no, we're not doing that. And so we already know we got mutts. So we, we're not going to really be changing the genetics of the system, so to speak. You know, so we've had partners. You were talking about the partnership. We've had partners. We There's a group of anglers they they kind of started out of the Gaston area, um, but they, he's trying to. So Marty Stone is kind of heading this up. Marty Stone is the MLF announcer, longtime bass angler from Sanford um, or Sanford area, which is where we are now. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And uh, Chuck Murray, who's the who is the um, current president of the state chapter of BASS, which I think is great. There's an MLF guy and there's a BASS guy. 
you know, which are competing tours, but they've come together and said, look, we're throwing all that aside. This is about what's best for the bass in North Carolina. And they, they really wanted to get behind it and champion it. There's some guys out of Lake Norman who have, uh, I think their name was the Lake Norman legends who's raised some money as well. But, but Marty has really kind of Marty and Chuck and, and, and that group have really kind of championed this and, um, really put forward that they want to raise a lot of money for bass conservation. Yep. You know, they want to raise money to stock stock reservoirs. Um, I get it. I, I understand it. You know, my, my only statement is, is the jury's out. You know, I don't know if it'll work or not. But, for instance, you know, if they raise enough money, we can, you know, maybe double the stocking rate, maybe, you know, of what we're currently doing. Right now it's four fish to the acre. We might get it to where it's eight fish to the acre. But, you know, their money is important because we can take their money, which we consider, I'm putting air quotes, as state dollars, and we can match that with federal federal grant monies, you know, one to three. So for every one fish they buy, we buy three kind of thing. So it, it, it really does help, and it, it really is beneficial um, over the long term of the project, you know. And, and Marty's got big plans. And Marty's Marty, and I, I love him to death. And, <laughs> and um He's a great guy and he's a good talker. That's why he's on MLF. But um, you know, he's got big plans and I appreciate I appreciate them approaching it and saying, Hey, look, we really want to do something for bass conservation and and um I mean Kevin Van Dam gave money at Red Crest towards yep. it and you know, so it, it's it's definitely on people's radar. You know, I want people to be realistic about what it is, that, you know, it is an experiment. It we're trying to do it where we can repeat it. So a lot of people think, well, let's just throw the kitchen sink at it. That's not really the experimental scientific biological way to do it. You know, so we have to have some parameters on it, you know, to be able to, you know, be able to make it repeatable. And we can understand that if we do this here, it's likely because of this, you know, the the effect. We can have a cause and effect kind of thing, Mm -hmm. you know, where we can understand what's going on. You know, if we just threw fish at the wall and just hoped and prayed that it worked you know it's probably not going to work one and two if it did work we wouldn't be able to say well it worked because of this well if you throw a fish at a wall it's going to die usually (laughs) but just to clear that up uh jordan gaston Mm -hmm. and norman Mm -hmm. that's testing the theory yeah and the baseline is four fish to the acre um the money that those guys are raising, so that is what the Wildlife Commission is producing right now. We're not producing. We're actually buying the fish. We don't even have hatchery space for it right now. But um, the money they produce will be added to that four fish to the acre. So, you know, if it's four fish to the acre and they, they raise enough money to do another four fish to the acre, we'll do eight fish to the acre. Um so that that's kind of the purpose. Now we'll cap that at some point. We haven't really talked about what the cap is, like per fish to the acre. But um, you know, at some point, stocking becomes a diminishing return. You're mm-hmm. just dumping fish in a hole for no reason. And I'd assume it'd be different. You know, Norman would be in least uh, less well, productive. We actually want to keep the stocking rates the same. Okay. okay. Because that eliminates something that we can control. Yeah. We mm-hmm. can we, if we keep them the same. Basically, we can determine it's something in the reservoir that works. Remember, I talked about yeah, productivity yeah. level. Well, if I stocked it at four fish to acre and I stocked this over here at 20 fish to the acre, I can't tell you what it was. You know, it could be the productivity level or it could be the stocking rate. And then we'd have to get Pete's math involved. Yeah, and, and then you, can, have, you can definitely tell Ben didn't do any like science 
stuff in high school. Science stuff. So yeah. That, Experiments. So, that's where it is. Yeah, there it is. Science stuff. Yeah. You didn't that's do nothing out there. Science stuff. <laughs> well, no, no, no. Like, so you, have the, to keep, you have to keep as many of the parameters the same so that you can really determine what is causing that issue. Now, if we do it and they all act the same, then, you know, say five years from now, maybe we do change stocking rates and try to figure out what the actual right stocking rate is. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, w- there's enough literature in the science world to know that, one, stocking fish is an uphill battle. I'll say that up front. So sometimes it's successful. Sometimes it's not. Particularly in the bass world, it can be really clunky. Um and then there is a diminishing return. You do get to a level that you're just wasting money, you know, and we don't know that yet what that is. Um, but this will over a period of time will at least determine whether it works in all three reservoirs or not. And then we'll determine, then we'll probably eventually determine what the stocking rate actually should be mm-hmm. moving into the future. Cause if it works and it's a tool we can use, then we got to start talking about how do we do that in the hatchery system, you know, in our production facilities, what does that look like? You know, if we're, where are we going to move it to if we do move it? You know, if it is successful, because we can't stock everywhere and right. not everywhere needs it. I'll be honest with you. You know, this is a test to give us some kind of groundwork to what we can work off of. And it may absolutely, utterly fail. That's a part of science, too, believe it or not. Yep. Failure is a part of it. And and we learn from failure as well. So where where is the just out of pure curiosity, the F1 bass? Like, where are they coming from? Like where's the hatchery? Um, most of them are out of uh, either Arkansas, Alabama. They're they're generally in the very southern end of the country. Okay. Um, one because they can get a head start on bass growth. They they generally are producing fish late February into March, and then we can get fish at a decent size come May and June to stock out. I was going to ask, what size do do you stock? We 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 can only afford fingerlings. They're fifty cent a fish. Um, mm-hmm. so those fish are about two inches on average. Um, but that's generally the way we stock reservoirs anyway. We try not to stock really large fish. It's once again, it's diminishing returns. Once you get up to like a four to six inch fish, you've quadrupled, if not maybe probably more than that, the cost you're, you know, a four to six inch fish, you're looking at somewhere between probably five to $8. Really? Oh yeah. It gets expensive. So fast. like a gallon of gas. Yeah. It gets wow. expensive fast on a, on a fish. So what we're, but your stocking rate would be a lot less than that, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But if you stock little fish and stock enough of them, you know, put enough on the landscape, you should have some sort of effect over a period of time. And it's going to take time. We started in Norman really and truly last year. Last spring was the first full-fledged year. We kind of tinkered with it the first couple of years. But last year was the first full-fledged year of stocking. This year will be the first year, and it's all money-related, but this year will be the first year for Gaston and and Jordan. Okay. Yeah. So we're 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 a few years out. So I should have one on my line in a couple of years. No. 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 I mean, you're you're still looking at. I mean, you might catch a eight incher in a couple of years, but you're still looking at you know three years before they really become true bass in the population that you're going to love to catch. It's still a three year old fish. What you're looking at is, you know, you're not gaining a year in growth just because it's a hybrid. You're probably gaining a half a year you know but the the max potential is really what we're looking for like they're growing faster but the max potential on the back end like instead of them maybe topping out at eight or nine pounds maybe they top out at 10 to 12 pounds you know that kind of Mm -hmm. thing is really what let's see what they actually can do 
Yep. You know, Jordan's already producing really nice fish. Yes. And if F1s take hold there and can and produce, you know, if we can get enough on the landscape and they can produce, you know, we potentially could could push some push some big numbers at Jordan if if they took hold. I mean, that's mm. that's the hope and dream, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, that's the whole point of this experiment is to figure that out if we can actually do that. Might make me love that mud hole again. How do, angler, how do anglers <laughs> or, or or anybody in general that's interested in this, how do they get involved in that, like supporting that program? I cannot remember the web. I think the website's title is ncf1bass. It's either .com or .org. Mm-hmm. It'll have Marty's picture on there. It'll have my picture yeah. on there. And it's okay uh, because we'll we'll find it. I'll link it in we'll the link podcast. It. Yeah, yeah, that's it's, it's worth a Google. Yeah, and I mean, you know, you can give a dollar, you can give fifty cent, you can give ten thousand dollars if that's what you want to do. I mean, you know, it just depends. I mean, Marty's, you know, Marty's trying to get people to follow, and I mean, he, you know, his whole thing with when he first approached me, he's like, if I can get what do you say, if I can get three hundred anglers, anglers to, to give a hundred dollars, give a hundred dollars, I'd have three hundred thousand dollars annually. And when you put it in that those terms, I'm like, that's really not that that's hard really to do. Not that much. <laughs> it's really not that hard. And and I've told Marty this numerous times: three hundred thousand dollars annually in the bass world in North Carolina will change the landscape of what we can and can't do for bass yeah. anglers. Yeah. I mean, I'm just being honest. We can talk about production and habitat, and I mean, there's so many things that we could do with that kind of money. You know, I mean, um, your tournament look, entry fees are less than that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I was just going to say, like, think about it this way. And we talk about it all the time. And I'm going to go back to it. We all talk about growing the sport till it's time to grow the sport. What's a, a bag of plastics is five bucks now. That's mm. 10 F1 bass that you can help stock. Just buy one less pack of soft plastics, donate to the cause, and help us make the fisheries better. Yeah. Potentially. Or we can't say it's it. going to definitely happen. Yeah. Let's test it Potentially. together. And we're not going to – so I'll, I'll put this plug in for the Wildlife Commission. We're not going to waste your money. We're not going to – if we think it's a waste, we wouldn't be doing this. Um, we didn't really go out and seek the partnership. The partnership came from the anglers, and we mm-hmm. are all about it. I mean, we love the idea, not because it's money. We would love the partnership no matter what, even if it didn't come with money. Right. Um, we, we're just glad to have conversations with bass anglers that, like I said, 25 years ago, we just didn't have. Yeah. And I have, I have long preached and been on my soapbox and – tried and tried and tried to beat the the bass door down to get in the door to talk to bass anglers they're the hardest to talk to i can talk to crappy anglers all day striper anglers all day they'll talk all catfish anglers they'll talk to me all day long bass anglers i'm an idiot do you want my fishing spot <laughs> no yeah and, and that's not really it you know there's been a level of distrust and all that and i get back on my soapbox you know it, it takes all of us, right? And and we're not always going to agree on something, and that's fine. I'm good with that. I'm good with debate. I'm good with us not agreeing on every every topic and everything. That, that's what makes the world go around. But at least have the conversation yep. so that I know where you are, and I can I, I will I will become and my staff will become better managers if I know where you are. Yep. You know, if you're a black box that I never hear from, that's a hard thing for me to tap into. You know. And so my mantra is, you know, it, it doesn't hurt picking up the phone call, call your local district biologist. People like Seth Michael, he's a tournament bass angler. I mean, he, t- he fishes tournaments and um, just bought a new bass boat. <laughs> so mm. he's, he's a happy man. Um, well, maybe not so happy when he gets the bill. But, <laughs> but, but he loves bass fishing. He eats, sleeps, and breathes it. He loves talking about it. 
And so, you know, there when we got those folks scattered all over the state that that it might not bass fishing might not be their thing, but fishing's their thing. And, right. and they they want to hear from anglers. And um, you know, if if it's not this partnership, let it be another partnership. At least pick up the phone and just say, "Hey, I want to talk to you for 30 minutes about bass angling." About about my bass fishery, you know, whether that's Lake Camac in Burlington or the Noose River on the coast or Lake yeah. Fontana out west, we got folks that can speak to that. You know, yeah. there's not much water in the bass world we haven't touched in the state of North Carolina. We pretty much, I mean, there might be some rivers that are hard to get to or something like that, but for the most part, if it's got bass in it, we've touched it, okay. and it's just a matter of picking up the phone and talking to us. Yeah, that's awesome. So. Donate if you can. Obviously, we'll link that in the description below. It's important. We talk about conservation. Everybody wants to argue about tournament formats and which one's better for conservation. Do what you can to help conserve fish. Maybe make it better. Maybe not. I don't know. We need to experiment like Corey talked about. Um, And we're learning. Yeah. I mean, you know, we don't have a corner on the market. We're learning every day. That's what we do. Yeah, and don't transport dang fish That's, to other yeah. bodies of water because, man, I'll tell you right now, you could destroy – I mean, it, we could have a – It's happening. Yeah, we could have a dang Alabama bass country, and you're not going to catch smallmouth anywhere if they get taken to the wrong places. Yeah. I think the, the, the main point of this whole conversation is like a conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, like closed mouths don't get fed. If you yeah. have something to say – Pick up the phone, write an email, whatever you got to do. Have the conversation. Try I mean, to be civil. Yeah, I was just going to say, be well, I, mean, I mean, don't get me wrong. I've had a lot of conversations with people yelling at me, and I've still learned something when people are yelling yeah. at me. But I'd prefer you to be in a normal yeah. tone of voice. Be respectful. But, be civil. Yeah. But this is good, though. You know, like when when we have anglers show up to the ramp and, and make statements about something, it's, it's not the place to get in an argument at, but it mm-hmm. is the place to educate people. And this has been extremely educational. Yeah. You know, to, and, and I'll just circle back to Harris because it's right down the road. It is probably one of the most talked about lakes in the Piedmont area that I always hear about how much of a dump hole it is, but nobody understands the why behind the why. It's always like Duke Power killed the grass or NC Wildlife isn't doing what they need to do. And it's like, well, let's rewind 10, 20 years ago, even longer and, and, and think about what's going on. And some of it's just nature taking its course too so it's not always someone's fault that something happened but sometimes it is and we're the worst people to take a look in the mirror and say that was my fault right so we can talk about the slot limit we can pick up the phone and have a conversation say tell me what the secondary and and tertiary effects of reducing the slot would be removing it right what would that do to the fishery because everyone has a different perspective tournaments recreational fishing biologists all these people get involved have these conversations we map it out on a whiteboard and then we move forward from there sometimes there's no options that's right sometimes there's just not an sometimes our hands it. are tied sometimes our hands are tied right so yeah. or or we don't have the tool yet you know right. some tools come later down the road i mean like alabama bass is a really good example of that it is so new even though it's on even though it's been happening since the 90s it's still very new in the biological world and it is like exploded over the past decade, decade and a half, um, where we're just getting fish, we're getting Alabama bass everywhere now. And, and it's been so rapid, like it's hard to keep up with it. And it's hard to keep up with what the effects are and the things we thought we knew 30 years ago, hmm, we knew some of it, but some of it we didn't know, you know, we found out "Mm, we were wrong about that. And so, you know, 
if you see something, say something. You know, if you think something's going on that that you know uh, is wrong, or or you're seeing something in your fishery that concerns you, pick up the phone. Now, I'm going to tell you the biologist, maybe on the first phone call, might be a little hesitant because a lot of times we get a lot of things from anglers that are just like... Hate mail. Wait, No, not hate mail, but just way out there in the left field. It doesn't really ring true to what we're seeing. But if you keep having that conversation and you, you're honest about what you're seeing and, and straightforward with the biologist, we start learning. And, you know, we've learned a lot of things from anglers. Hopefully, eventually, anglers will learn a lot of stuff from us. <laughs> I, find, <laughs> you know? I, yeah. I find it so interesting, uh, you know, especially on, on Kerr or Carr or Bugs Island, however you want to say it. I've all seen, three. All it's three. Yeah. I've seen spots weighed in at tournaments, right? And, oh, yeah. And, and they want them gone. An angler, when they're not fishing, will be out in the woods smoking white-tailed deer all day long, right? Redu- managing the population, specifically the does and stuff. But they will be the first person to say, I'm not killing that fish. I'm throwing that back in the water. Like, yeah. what? hold on a minute. You yeah. know what I mean? So It, it really is a different mindset. And it, it is. And it all started a great thing. Bass anglers in particular, it's really, it, it's picked up with catfish. Catfish anglers have gotten this way oh, too yeah. about yeah. catch and release. And and I'm not discounting that. But it really all started with, I mean, honestly, it started with Ray Scott and, mm-hmm. and BASS. And it was a great thing because bass were kind of in limbo there at some level but you know like all good things you can take them to an extreme sure. you know yeah. and and so it's a balance it you is know, it is a balance that just made me think back you know the early days of bass seven pound stringers are all dead they didn't have live wells like the you, know, yeah. you got more. bonus points if you could bring fish in alive yeah so yeah. Yeah. like the mindset's changed a lot and there's there's a point where that may have worked and sometimes as we talked about secondary and tertiary effects there's a point that it becomes too much. Yeah, it? it can. I mean, you know, basket, well, fish care in general at tournaments has gotten dramatically mm-hmm. better since the 70s for sure. I mean, these live wells now are, you know, I'm not saying you can't hold fish in live wells. Don't take that as the take home, but, you know. Um, do it responsibly. Yeah, do it responsibly because, I mean, you, you can't have an effect. But it, it's it's crazy, you know, we're talking about, and I, and I love, cat, we've podcasted with a guy, uh, Tyler Barnes. He's the flathead catfish Mm -hmm. record holder right Mm -hmm. and uh, a super great guy i mean really great guy but he releases every flathead and every blue cat he ever catches you know and i'm like these things are monsters (laughs) i mean mean, in terms of in terms of what they can consume and in terms of what they've done to native fisheries man wipe the floor with them but 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 that's from a biological perspective you know from from that angler's perspective that's his trophy fish he wants that fish to come back again next year and i get that i do i understand it but from a biological perspective i'm like man you you can't hurt this fish Yeah. yeah you could you could literally go out and catch all the 30 pounders in the world and there's five gazillion more yep, you yeah. know that's a number by the way gazillion, gazillion yeah. I like uh, it. there's five gazillion more to take its place next year you know yeah. kind of thing and so that's the that's the same with alabama bass you can we can harvest them there's probably a level that we can harvest and have a detrimental effect on the fishery you know so yeah. to speak open but, season but we are nowhere near that yeah it's I mean, probably we're not, not realistic. we're not even we're not even close mm-hmm we need to run a tournament on Lake Norman every single day and catch all the spotted bass that you can. <laughs> well, they run, they run ter- multiple tournaments every single day at Lake Norman. I've worked at Lake a bunch. Now, they don't all harvest. Um, Lake Norman anglers are a little different. They have a different approach. Um, they are all for the spotted bass. They brought them there. They want them there. Really? They like the um, 
they like the activity that spotted bass bring them, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of catching more fish. But it's like I told, you know, Marty Stone and I had this conversation as Red Crest was happening and after Red Crest got over, you had 40 of some of the best bass anglers in the world, right? On that lake. Oh, yeah. The three day average for Brian was just 15 pounds. Yeah, just at 15 pounds. Yeah. But if you dropped a 10th place, the three day average was in the nines. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. like that's how significant. And if you look at them, they're at Lake Murray this week. They're hammering they're them. Killing and the, the dang, like in 30th place in the group A and group B is like at 15 pounds. What was yeah. winning Norman, right? Yeah. What was winning Norman. Yep is is not even going to get you to the cut line yep. of the qualifying stage. You know, that's the difference yep. between a largemouth bass fishery that's healthy and a spotted bass fishery that's run amok, or Alabama bass fishery that's run amok. That's yeah, the yeah. difference. And so it's not that those fish can't become three pounds and four pounds and whatever. It's not that. But the vast majority of them are going to be pound, pound and a halfers. Mm-hmm. My last question on the spotted bass – and I know we beat the spotted bass mm. to death, and we can't. We actually need to beat them to death. But um, <laughs> <laughs> ball bats. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it, are they working on a? I don't know how to say. It. Is there like a viral solution to introduce into that population so, to sterilize them? Or so that's what like I talk that? about tools, yeah. right? So, um, you know, forever and a day we've been looking at that in trout. Um, freshwater trout, so mountain trout. We've been looking at what they call super males, YYs. And if you can get like a super male in the, introduced in the population, you can literally reproduce them out because okay. you'll end up with just nothing but males, okay. basically, is what will happen over a period of time. And then they all die out because there's no females left. And so when we're talking about trout restoration in the mountains, because believe it or not, there's two out of three of those are invasives, <laughs> you yeah. know, brown, brown and rainbows are not native to North Carolina. Only mm-hmm. Brooks are. Oh, wow. And so when we're trying to restore, we're not trying to get rid of browns and rainbows. Don't call your local <laughs> congressman. <laughs> but, but when we're trying to restore brook trout, for yeah. example, at very high elevations and rainbows are there, it would be great to have a tool that we could literally stock a super YY rainbow in there and eventually that trout would be, that that stream would become fishless and we could put brook trout in its place nice um so, and so that that technology is being looked at for all kinds of species flathead catfish is one of them i don't know that anybody's doing alabama bass my guess is somebody is yeah um but we're 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 a ways out I, i'm not saying that that tool doesn't like a lot of people think tools never become available and all of a sudden they do, Yeah, you know, 20, 30 years from now, probably long after I'm gone, that tool might be available and, and we might be able to it's, do something with it, but we're a ways out. Going back to my own line of work. Um, there's a lot of ethical questions with that because it exists, for instance, in Afghanistan, we could have ran a virus that would just killed all the opium plants. Yep. There's a lot of issues that go along with that tertiary oh, yeah. effects. Um, yep. And there's ethical issues with that. And so it's one of those things, like, you, you think it's going to work, and then you realize, oh, maybe these well, that, genes are too been, close. That's and, been the history of the United States. There's been yep. a lot of things biologically that we've used to control other biology, yeah. and and it's turned out, turned out to be a pretty bad idea. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so you, you, yeah, you're right, Ben. You, you have to balance, you know, what am I gaining from that? 
have I thought it all the way through? Sure. And you've never thought it all the way through. Yeah. Yeah. But, you, you know, can't. have I run no. down as many roads as I can before before we ever pulled a trigger on something like that? We would definitely investigate both in a laboratory type setting and also what, what it would do in the wild. Generally, yeah. like, for instance, in, in the trout world, generally there's only like one species of fish there. Like generally in brook trout streams, brook trout is the fish. There's nothing else. There's a bunch of bugs and stuff, but there's nothing else. Mm -hmm. And so if you can get those other trout out, we can put the brook trout back. So it would be a lot more controlled in that, in that type of system. But, but, and those are, those populations are so isolated anyway. It's not like we're introducing a fish that's going to run right downstream and get in other rainbow trout. You know what I'm saying? So we would do that kind of homework. We, we've learned some lessons yeah. that where we've done things like introducing flatheads and blue cats and, yeah. you know, stuff like that. That's, that's highly re- detrimental. And I didn't realize they were invasive here. It explains why they're so big monsters in the so rivers that they're, lakes they're, are running. They're here. only invasive in the Atlantic Slope Basin. So if you think of the continental divide of the Appalachians, mm-hmm. everything east of that, yeah. they are not native. Everything west of that, they are native to. Same with channel cats. Channel cats have been here so long, though that um they are what we call naturalized at this point meaning that those fish have been on the landscape since probably the mid 1800s that that we really don't know what effects channel cats had we do know the effects of like flatheads and blues we're seeing that firsthand um what's happening there so but we brought them here (laughs) so this has been awesome we're going on two hours we're calling this part one yeah, uh, we're gonna have Corey back because we've got uh, <laughs> we've got a lot of the hot topic items out of the way, and we want to talk fishing, we want to talk fish behavior, sure. weather, all that good stuff. Okay. We want him to get into how you can work for fisheries if you're passionate about it. Uh, our young listeners, you know what paths, what options you have, and even if you're looking for a career change, go to be a doctor. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know things like that. So, uh, before we we sign off here, Corey, you want to go ahead and uh, plug your your guys' podcast, and then let oh, folks sure. know how they can reach out to you, email or whatever is the best way. Yeah. So, you know, I had this dream of this conversation right here that we're having here today of of trying to talk to anglers or industry or whatever. And so, we started a podcast with the Wildlife Commission called Better Fishing with Two Bald Biologists. Obviously, I'm bald. The other guy's bald too. Um, his name's Ben Ricks, a longtime friend of mine, biologist on the coast. And um, our, our goal there is to marry the biology we know to the angling that we know, um, which is a little bit different take on fishing podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's not just straight fishing. It's not straight biology. It's kind of, this is what we know about the biology. This is how it would affect your fishing. And so, and we don't just talk about, but we talk about everything. Yeah. Every every species of fish that roams North Carolina that people fish for, we're trying to talk about. We've done one on muskie and hybrid striped bass, and we've done several on bass. We've done, um, we've done river herring. Um, we're doing a smallmouth bass one. We've done catfish ones. So if you, if you got a flavor that you like, um, at some point we'll probably talk about it. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. so make sure you guys check that out. And how can folks get a hold of you if they have questions or want to report something what's um, the best way so the best way to get in touch with me is you can get in touch with me through my email which is cory.oakley at ncwildlife.org and y'all can probably put that up later mm-hmm. with the right letters and all um you can also you can also get get me through my podcast at two bald biologists at ncwildlife.org mm-hmm. um that that comes directly to me as well so um either way uh i would i would stress 
I stress this. If you if you want to talk about Harris or talk, whatever, get in touch with your local biologist. Yep. Those folks know their water very well. Um, they're very most of them are seasoned at this point. They've been around for a few years or or longer. We got some that have been around almost thirty. And so, you know, those folks have seen most of the water that you're fishing and touched a fish that you're fishing for, whether whatever the species is. If bass is not your thing, if something else, they've done it. Um, and so get in touch with them, talk with them, have a conversation, um, be civil. <laughs> yeah. Know, my, my folks should be civil. If they're not, I'm coming after That's them. Right. <laughs> but, um, it will reflect. But, That's right. But, it, you know, it goes a long way is having a conversation and getting to know those folks and them getting to know you. It really does pay off in the long run. I've seen it pay off in my career. I'm seeing it pay off in the bass world. I mean, for the first time in probably forever in the wildlife commission, we're actually talking to bass anglers and you know, it took Alabama bass to do that. You know, it took something bad for that to happen. It's almost like, you know, you hadn't talked to your family until the funeral happens, you know, kind of thing. And, and that's, there's some of that going on in the bass world. You know, we wouldn't be talking if the funeral wasn't happening. <laughs> you know, I hate to say that, but but now that my foot's kind of in the door, or, uh, you know, and I say my, I mean the Wildlife Commission's foot's in the door, I, I think we, we can build upon those conversations with bass anglers, you know, especially if we all come to the table and talk about what we know and what we don't know and admit Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Admitting yeah. it's number one. Y'all got anything else? No, my mind's blown right now. Corey, yeah. I definitely appreciate it. Yep. I love all the information. Um, Ben's taking notes. I mean, yeah, he you can see taking... I had all my questions here. I've got all my legal pads. I mean, I've done it. I mean, I've watched a lot of videos I, I mentioned before mm-hmm. about the Toledo Ben bass study they yeah. were doing because the science behind it gets me because if you understand the why behind fish behavior and all, then it should make you a better angler in the future. And that's, that's true. A, and honestly, it's probably the point of y'all's podcast, but it's really the point of our podcast. If you understand, if you think like a fish, it should make you a better bass angler. Now, most biologists are terrible at, it, at being <laughs> anglers, but um, in general, if you can just kind of wrap your, around, your head around some generalities of how fish behave and what fish are doing and why they're doing it, you generally will become a better a better fishermen over over a period of time i think yeah and we're going to talk about that next time yeah well appreciate you uh driving thanks for having over here uh the warning label is on the box folks don't transport fish clean your stuff and help us out with conservation we'll see you on the next episode that's a good one that's a good one it's a toad dude let's go I wake up to a little bit of drool on my pillow, feel like it's gonna be a bad day.